It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. For more than 30 years, Dr. Bruce Perry has been a world-renowned professor, clinical researcher, practicing psychiatrist, and pioneer in the study of childhood trauma. The brains of really severely neglected children tend to be smaller than the brains of children who have not been neglected. As a leader in his field, Dr. Perry has worked with victims of America's highest profile traumatic events, including the Branch Davidian siege in Waco, the September 11th terrorist attacks, and the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. I first met Dr. Bruce Perry in 1989. He appeared many times on The Oprah Show to talk about his research on trauma, healing, and how we overcome the wounds of our past. Now Bruce and I have co-authored a book. I'm so excited right now because have you seen the book that we did together? What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. The experiences you have when you're growing up, both good and bad, shape the biology of your brain. Where we discuss why asking this one fundamental question, what happened to you, is a revolutionary new way to understand our relationships and behavior. So, hey, welcome to Super Soul, Dr. Bruce Perry. I'm here in my garden. You're joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, my old stumping ground. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm so good. You know, the truth is that you and I have been thinking about, talking about for a long time, working together on issues surrounding what makes people behave the way they do, specifically childhood trauma. And uh, I'm so excited right now because have you seen the book that we did together? What happened to you? This is such a critical question. And the reason why I wanted you to do a book about it is because several years ago, I was doing a story for 60 Minutes on childhood trauma based on this place in Milwaukee called St. A's. And I interviewed you for that. And although I've been talking to you for over 30 years, about the effect of trauma on children's brains. It was in that moment that I had the biggest aha ever. It, it actually changed the way I see people. It changed the way I see myself. It changed the way I operate in business and it changed the way 
I operated my school because the question of not of what's wrong with you, but what happened to you allows us to look at a person from not a place of judgment, but a place of trying to understand what went on before that is causing that behavior. So that's a long intro into why does that shift matter? Well, it's one of the most important things about that shift in frame of reference is that we know that the experiences you have when you're growing up, both good and bad, shape the biology of your brain. And so these early experiences literally have a major impact on your physical health, your mental health, your social health, and, and really every aspect of our society is impacted by developmental experiences, and, and particularly developmental experiences that are toxic, traumatic. Okay, so the bottom line is it's what happened to you as a child shaped the way you actually viewed the world and your world view determined your personal view of yourself. And that is why you either grow up with a sense of worthiness or not based on what your surroundings are. That's what I hear you saying. Exactly. And, and I think people in, intuitively understand that your life experiences influence who you are. But what I don't think they right. connect with is that those experiences literally change the biology of your body, particularly the biology yes. of your brain. That's what we did not realize until you came along to tell us. So let's start with the word trauma, because I know it's a term that's thrown around a lot nowadays, right. and you'd like to be very specific. <laughs> so how do you define trauma? So everybody uses that term, right? They, they'll talk about yeah, how, yeah. oh my God, I was tra traumatized by something that somebody said to me at lunch, you know? And yeah. uh, when we are talking about trauma in this book, and when I talk about trauma in, a, in my work, I'm actually referring to uh, an experience that can literally influence the way your stress response systems work, and as a result, have long-term impact on the person. So, and this is an important thing because the experience itself is not necessarily the trauma. Two people can go into the same event and one will be completely overwhelmed and have long-term problems with sleep, anxiety, impulsivity. Mm -hmm. And another person- Give me an example. Well, Give me an example, a car accident, a exactly. fire, because most people think of traumas as major disasters in your life, right. crises. Right. So you're saying two people can go into the same event and come out completely different. Exactly. Because? Well, in, in part because both of them are going to have a slightly different ability to manage that event that they bring into it. Yeah. So there may be somebody who has a history of inconsistent, unpredictable life experiences, and they're more fragile. So when they're in a school fire, for example, they're going to have a much harder time than a child who has come from a stable, consistent, predictable background. And, and they'll both have some initial response, but the child who has that stable background is going to have a, a higher probability of getting back to a healthy baseline. The other child's more vulnerable. I mean, one of the classic examples is if you look at people that go into the military, and then experience combat while they're in the military. Right. If you take the people that join the military and they have a history of domestic violence, alcoholism in their family, sexual abuse, physical abuse, 
and then they go into combat, they'll develop post-traumatic stress disorder at a rate that's about three times higher than individuals who join the, the military and don't have that background, but experience the same level of combat. So interesting. Also interesting that most people associate the word trauma with big dramatic events, exactly. like we're talking about fires or hurricanes or you know major disasters. But there are also uh, silent traumas, I think you call them, that have lasting impact. Right. So equally lasting impact. Exactly. And I think that th this is an area that I hope the book will help people understand better. You know, one of the things that we're we've been talking about in this last year as in our society is racism, right? And one of the things that we know is that the stress response systems in our body that are sort of housed in the brain predominantly, these systems are very, very malleable. They change in response to the pattern of stressor that you experience. And if your experiences with stress are unpredictable and inconsistent and you have no control over them, you can have changes in the biology of that stress response system that look just like a big capital T trauma, even though you never had any big event. And examples of that are being, let's say you are a minority child in a majority community. You're continually getting these little, little doses of like, why are you here? And, and do you belong here? Microaggressions, My, you we know, call people them. Can, Microaggressions. People have labeled them microaggressions. But when those happen, your stress response activates. And because it's unpredictable, these little activations all day long slowly transform your stress response system be, to becoming what we refer to as sensitized. It's overly active, it's tuned up, and then it's overly reactive. And so what'll happen is somebody who has a stress response system like that is gonna have a predisposition for having hypertension, for having diabetes, for having asthma. And it, of course, if you look at mm -hmm. children of color and youth of color in our society, their rates of asthma, heart disease, diabetes are higher than the general population. And I believe a lot of that can and be- And it all goes back to that question of what happened to you. Exactly. How, what your early childhood development was like. Exactly. Don't go anywhere. More to come after this short break. No two travelers are exactly alike. And that means no two trips should be either. Texas' vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. Are you a beach person? Well, you'll be having fun under the sun with Texas' 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies can't get enough of Texas' world-famous barbecue and Tex-Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. Macy's Mother's Day gift guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion, Eau de Parfum, 
Coach Floral Printed Leather Cassie Crossbody Bag, and Le Creuset Shallot Dutch Oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash gift finder. So here's the thing that really is, if I can get this message to the world, I will be so satisfied. People may be surprised or even shocked to learn that our brain development and decision-making patterns are shaped by the first few years of our life experiences. And, you know, when I first started talking to you 30 years ago, we were always, we were talking about, we were doing a program called Zero to Six, what happens right. in those zero to six years. Right. What I have since learned from our discussions is that it's not even, it, it is zero to six, but those first two months, yep. which makes sense because anybody who ever has ever had a baby, been around a baby, knows anything about babies knows, in those first couple of months, that baby, baby is just taking in everything. They're like a sponge. Exactly. And you're saying in this, in this book that if in the first two months, go ahead, explain it. All right. So this is it. This is the bing, bing, bing moment. Attention, everyone. All right. So first of all, I think, you know, there's a lot of work that's shown that adverse experiences or traumatic experiences during development change your, your biology and make you at increased risk for heart disease, you know, mental health problems, substance abuse, and all kinds of bad things. But if you actually start to look at when those adverse experiences take place, it turns out that the most important time appears to be this first, you know, the first start in life, the first couple of months. And so when we look at kids who have lots of adversity and few relational supports, in the first two months of life, and then they get into a healthy environment, after only two bad months, they have worse outcomes than kids that have a good two months, and then something happens where all kinds of bad things happen, lots of trauma, lots of adversity. So does that mean that if you're zero to two months, horrible things are happening, chaos, people are cursing around you, all kinds of you know, manifestations of darkness are, are showing up around you and you don't have the language to explain it, it's more damaging than if it happens to you older and you at least can process it through language. You have more tools. As, you know, the older you get, the more tools you have to understand and make sense out of what's happening to you. But a, a, an infant doesn't have the, the, their brain is not developed yet to the point where they can really understand what is happening. And so if those stress response systems experience chaos, threat, uh, and all kinds of extreme things, they'll literally be these genetic changes in the way those systems organize, and they'll literally view the world as a threatening place. And so what that means is, if even in a safe environment, if your brain is primed to respond to, to everything as if it's a threat, a teacher who comes up to everything and tries to be kind, your brain will go, what do you want from me? As opposed to, let me listen to you. And it literally leads to this, this sort of vicious negative cycle of misunderstanding and then uh, actions on the part of the adult world that further traumatize the child. So to explain this, you want us to imagine the brain as a four-layer cake. Right, and I, I think that the more everybody understands a little bit about how the brain works and how the brain changes, the better off we're gonna be. We'll be better parents, we'll be better teachers, we'll be better in law enforcement. And 
And one of the simple fundamental tools we do to, to help teach people these things is have them envision the brain as this upside down triangle. And down at the bottom are these regulatory systems that control heart rate, blood pressure, and so forth. And as you get higher and higher in the brain, you get to the cortex, the top part of your brain that's the most uniquely human part of our brain. Those capabilities are the things that we're trying to basically encourage and build into the brain of a, of a child when we teach them right from wrong, when we teach them language, when we teach them geography, when we teach them the story of our people. All of those things go into the cortex. But the dilemma is, down here in the lower part of the brain, we've got these regulatory networks involved in the stress response. And when they're activated, and when you feel under threat, the first thing that happens is you shut down the top part of your brain. All of the things we're trying to do in education, parenting, therapy, that are intended to reach the top part of the brain, they're never gonna get there if we don't first deal with the trauma-altered stress response systems that originate in the lower part of the brain. Okay, so it's why you also say you can never in an argument, if, so, if you're in an argument with someone, and this goes for whether you're arguing with a child, or a child is really angry and upset, if someone is angry, you can never reach them through more anger. And that's just not philosophical or social. That's actually the way your brain works. It's biology, yeah, exactly. So you're saying you can't coach, you can't reason, you can't teach, you can't get somebody to agree with you when they're in the midst of their anger, exactly. period. Exactly. It does not work. Exactly. It has to get through this lower kind of reactive part of our brain, and then it has to go through the emotional part of our brain, and then it finally gets up to the reasoning part of our brain. If you really want to get to somebody's cortex, first of all, they have to be regulated. And, and then you have to connect with them as a person. You keep using the term yeah. regulated, and I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that term. Sure. So explain what that means. What does being regulated mean? Well, broadly speaking, it means being in balance. You know, your body has all these systems that, you know, your lungs, they help you sort of manage and keep in balance the, your oxygen levels. And so if your oxygen level gets low because you're working really hard by walking up steps, you'll take deeper breaths. And so we have these, all of the systems that we have, uh, the systems that have to do with sleep and wake, the systems we have to do with, um, you know, oxygen and sugar in our blood, for example, they're always, trying to keep us in balance. And, and so these stress response systems that I kind of talked about that are in the lower part of the brain, they're continually getting information from the outside world and from the inside world. And so if you're getting signals from the people in your classroom, for example, that you belong, you feel safe, you feel regulated. But going back to these microaggressions that I talked about earlier, if you're getting signals that you don't quite belong, you're not one of us, you literally feel dysregulated and it, it's a stressor. And so anything that makes you feel um, marginalized, minimized, degraded, not heard, it activates your stress response. Yeah, when I learned this, I mean, I, I think that's fascinating because so many people who live in, in a society that marginalizes them, and I mean people of color, uh, it's, I don't understand why everybody isn't just stone crazy. Having yeah. to deal with that on a regular basis and how 
stressful those microaggressions are. And actually, it was an explanation that you gave about the brain, looking at that four layers, that yeah. helped me to understand racism differently. Sure. So, first of all, you're born with a brain that's undeveloped, you know, and it's, you know, the top part of your brain, the cortex, is not yet fully organized. Other parts of the brain aren't fully organized. And the way your brain um, makes sense out of the world is it takes patterns of activity, things you hear and things you see, and it connects them. And that's how your brain kind of makes sense out of your world when you're little. And if your world is filled with people who are all white, your brain basically makes sense out of human beings as being white. And when it sees something that doesn't fit your pattern, it activates a stress response. And that's because the brain's Whoa. default response to novelty, to anything new or anything unfamiliar, the default response is, what is this? Yeah. And so everybody builds this internal catalog that's their version of the way the world works. And so there was a woman whose daughter was a, basically a Peace Corps nurse, and she was going into villages in, in Africa and immunizing children. And some of these were very, very rural, and, and a lot of these children had never seen anybody who was white. She goes into the village, and some of the little kids look at her and run. Some of them just break out and start crying. And in part, that's just because for those children, this was so unfamiliar and so like different that it activated and right. frightened them. So what happened was this initial sort of implicit bias that they had was based on lack of experience with anybody that looked like that. But over time, they overcame that implicit bias by building in a new catalog of experience with a white person. And so the next white person they would meet, their brain would go, oh, you're in the same class as this nice, kind white person that helped us in our village. And the key, Oprah, is that first experiences are so powerful. Because they're setting, first experiences are they're the, most setting the, the template yeah. for the way your brain views the world. So if the first white person you meet turns out to be okay, and that's based on real yeah. experience. Your brain's right. default to the next white person is they're good. And also, may I say, if you grow up, let's start with this, and you know no other person of color. Exactly. So your only experience with people of color is through what you see in the media. In the media, exactly. And or translated through the people around you. You know, we don't talk about right. this much, but a lot of the toxic beliefs about others comes through the people we think are important, our coaches, our teachers, our parents. And so if they have come from and are biased and are racist, that percolates into us, even though we may claim yeah. that there's no, I don't have a racist bone yeah. in my body. It gets into your brain. Yeah. And I think yeah. the, the combination it, it, it of that- It literally gets into your brain. Exactly. Literally gets into your right. brain. And what I'm, what I'm trying to clarify here is, it doesn't matter if you grew up hearing the N-word or not, or negative things spoken about black and brown people or not. It's the way you saw your parents treat other people exactly. of color. It's the way your exactly. teachers spoke of or did. It's everything around or it's the you passivity. that is going into the brain. Right, or the passivity yeah. of watching your adult parent not 
not call somebody on making a racist joke. You see them laugh at a racist joke, that's endorsement, right? That that's okay. Mm -hmm. Even though they never did have explicit overt racist teachings in the home, that you pick it up as a child. Yeah. And so if you grow up with all kinds of bombardment of through the media, through these sort of filtered experiences in your home, in your community, that people who are black are other and not good as good as, or have other attributes that somehow get assigned to them, that gets into your brain. And so the, let's say you then have a real experience with somebody who's a person of color, and that can be great. And you can actually be pals and be, have, be teammates on, uh, on, in sports or whatever. And you can have lots of positive experiences, but to undo that original negative bias takes thousands and thousands and thousands of real experiences with multiple people. And very few, very few people are willing to put themselves in a situation to continue to be open and what has been referred to now as anti-racist. So you literally have to intentionally put yourself in a position where you're made to be uncomfortable with your own bias. But you have to do it again and again and again, and that can make it change. But it, 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 you know, it takes a special person that's willing to do that. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be entertaining. Entertaining is for podcasts with inspiring celebrity guests, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is the service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Inc. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. Iyanla Van Zandt says that every family has its patterns and pathologies of thought, belief, and behavior that are passed on from one generation to another. Yeah. And when I think of uh, the African-American community, I think about the hundreds of years of trauma that we've experienced dating all the way back to, you know, the first slave ship in 1619. So what does science say about that? How does the trauma of our ancestors actually affect us? Well, you know, one of the things that, about human beings, and this is a quality of the human brain, is that human beings, unlike any other species on the planet, have the ability to absorb uh, more information per second than any other species. And what that means is 
you can take the accumulated experiences, the distilled experiences of previous generations and internalize them in, in a way that'll change your brain. The, the best example that everybody can kind of connect with is learning to read. I mean, it, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, there wasn't a single human being on the planet who could read because we had not invented the written word. So reading is an invention that we pass on to the next generation. And, and the way we pass it on is by repetitive, intentional exposure to all of the things that go with learning how to read. We send kids to school and we practice and we practice and we practice and the brain changes with repetition. The same thing is true for the systems in our brain that are involved in the stress response and in how we manage stressors. Remember that human beings are contagious to the emotions of others. And so the child will literally feel fearful in a way that the adult feels fearful. And if that is repeated enough and enough and enough, pretty soon the child, the biology of the child's brain will mirror the biology of the parent's brain. And that can get transmitted from generation to generation to generation. Let's talk about resilience because our book is called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience and Healing. And I know you have lots to say about resilience that I want you to share with folks today because I think it's so important to understand the difference between resilience and being malleable. Yeah. Take it away. All right. So again, resilience is one of those words that we use a lot. And I, I just want to clarify that resilience is something that is not a permanent trait. Like, you know, someone's not just born resilient and they're going to be the same level of resilience their whole life. Resilience is this capability to respond to a challenge and a stressor and, and manage it and get back to your previous level of functioning. But the reality is the way human beings are is we're a little bit more like uh, the way we change in response to a stressor is that it's like bending a hanger. You know, you can bend a hanger to kind of, you know, if you have to open a car door or something. But if you bend the hanger and try to put it back to it where it was before, you can get it kind of there, but it's not exactly the same way it was. It'll function as a hanger, but it's got a weak place. And so that's more typical of the way human neurobiology is, is that even somebody who's able to demonstrate resilience at the beginning of the pandemic may not be able to manage the same level of challenge a year into the pandemic, for example. When I mentioned the fact that your ability to be resilient, which is what we say so many times about girls at my school, oh, they're so resilient, so resilient, also depends upon when the trauma happened, at what, at what age the trauma happened. So I just want to reemphasize that if you have a traumatic event or are in a series of traumatic, silent events occurring as a young child, you're going to be less able to cope than if those events happened later in your life. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, as a teenager. Right. Yeah, as a teenager. Right. And so, and the, so the I other think quality... this is so important. Yeah. B Bruce, I got to say this. Yeah. Because over the years, I've done so many uh, shows, had so many conversations with grown women in abusive relationships who say, yes, I know, he's, he's abusive to me, it's terrible, and as soon as the kids are older, I'm going to move out. Hmm. When in fact, you are doing the most damage, right. the younger, even 
infant children exactly. are receiving damage that may never be able to be repaired if you stay in a uh, chaotic, traumatizing, violent relationship. Exactly. And, th and that's one of the major kind of misconceptions of the adult world in general about young children and trauma. And the... Yeah, the, they I, think you can get over it. Right, exactly. They think that well, kids are resilient. You don't. You know, I, I can't tell. I hear that all the time. Kids are resilient. And uh, what we do know is that children are... We're, we're all malleable. And children are very malleable. And that basically means that you're changeable. You can change. And the good news about this malleability is that the ability to demonstrate resilience is changeable. So there are things you can do to make somebody more resilient, and there's things you can do to make somebody less resilient. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. How does understanding what happened to a child um, bring clarity to why a child purposely acts out? A lot of times when a, when a teacher has a child who acts out in the class, they feel as if it's personalized, as if the misbehavior is directed towards them. And in fact, it very rarely is. If a child has a history of trauma, it's because the behavior is kind of a manifestation at times of the fight or flight response. You know, whether it's physical proximity becomes an evocative cue. Every time any other adult got close to me and came up behind me, they were gonna hurt me. So when the teacher comes over my shoulder to try to help me, and they blow up and say, get away from me, that's basically a completely predictable defensive behavior by the child, but a completely confusing aggressive behavior to the teacher. And again, one of the things that we've been able to do with educators is if we teach them about trauma and about these responses, they begin to shift the way they understand the child. They no longer take it personally, they, they ask what happened to you. Sometimes they, they may not know what happened, but they realize something did happen. Something happened. Yeah, and so they can then change the way they treat them. Yeah, over the years, children have been punished. Oh. They've been ostracized. They've been um, condescended to. They've been made to feel shamed yeah. by the behavior, which only makes it worse. I think yeah. One of the best examples you give in what happened to you is the story of Sam. Can you share that? So I was working at a residential treatment center and this was a place where all of the children who were there, they were all boys and they'd all come from the foster care uh, child welfare system. So Sam had been there for a couple of years and he was doing pretty well. Uh, and in fact, he was kind of a model uh, student uh, in, in school until he progressed into a math class where there was a male math teacher. And he started having all these, these behaviors where he was uh, aggressive and um, rude and hostile and sometimes would just leave the class. So I observed. I couldn't figure out what was going on. I, I didn't see the teacher doing anything inappropriate. Uh, but every time he, the teacher kind of got close to Sam, you know, Sam would like push his desk or he'd throw a book on the floor, do something just sort of disruptive. So the teacher's just getting more and more frustrated. 
Teacher's frustrated. Teacher's getting more and more frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't know what's going on. Sam doesn't know why he acts that way. So Sam was actually scheduled to have a visit from his father, who had been his abuser. And so Sam comes into this room. He's sitting at a table waiting for his father to come. And I'm sitting in the corner just sort of daydreaming. The father comes in, and they start playing checkers or chess. I can't even remember. But they started playing some, some game. And I'm just sort of daydreaming, and I started, I started thinking about my dad. And I started thinking about, you know, fishing in Canada. And all of a sudden found myself uh, having memories of a, a certain deodorant that, that, and a combination of cigar smell and deodorant that my dad had that he always had when he wore his hunting shirt. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know, I, I'm actually smelling that smell. And so I went over to the father, and sure enough, the same scent from his deodorant was, was sort of permeating the air. And it was clear that he had actually used that to cover uh, the smell of alcohol because he was supposed to come to these visitations uh, sober. And so I thought, well, I wonder whether or not there was a scent that was an evocative cue for the teacher. So I go, go to the teacher and I said, listen, is there any, you know, what, what kind of deodorant do you use? And he named the deodorant, the same, very same deodorant my dad used, the very same deodorant that Sam's father was using. And I realized that every day in that class, every time the teacher got close enough for Sam's brain, you know, brain to smell that scent, it was an evocative cue. It was, it was triggering a trauma memory and resulting in these disruptive behaviors in the classroom. And once I asked the teacher to change the deodorant, and I sat them down and explained what I thought was happening, they started over. It was a reset. And they became like really good friends. And, and it was a really, really positive experience. You've worked with traumatized children after some of the most horrific events in our modern history, the Branch Davidian siege in Waco, I recall, Columbine and Sandy Hook school shootings. What are the key factors that are necessary to help children heal from huge disasters? You know, after all these years and lots of research from our group and, and other groups, it turns out that the most important factor is what we refer to kind of as your relational health. How connected are you in a healthy way to family, community, culture? And if you have these connections, you can buffer uh, present stressors, and it also provides the healing environment to, to, to recover from past trauma. So what we find is children who've got this relational wealth actually do pretty well. But children who have relational poverty are really very, very vulnerable. And it's also, if you've had a traumatic event, I remember covering stories where kids were kidnapped or horrible things had happened, and then the child was returned, and I was surprised that the parents hadn't spoken to the children about what had happened, and they were saying, we're waiting on her to tell us in her own time. Yeah, well, if you, if you remember our, our conversation about activating the stress response system in unpredictable and chaotic or extreme ways, that leads to vulnerability. But if you activate your stress response in moderate, predictable, controllable ways, tiny little doses of positive activation that you control, the kind of thing that can happen if you do 
sports or if you are involved in drama or performing arts of any sort, you know, e even conversation, you know, with somebody about a topic that's kind of hot, there's a little bit of activation, but it's controllable. And you, you, so you have this pattern of activation that can take these sensitized systems and make them more normal and that's healing. And so what really is a major determinant of whether or not you get these little doses of healing experience is the density of healthy people in your life. If you've got somebody you can well, engage with, you're gonna be able to heal. Tell me this, if you know traumatic things that happened to you from zero to two months, are embedded there in the brain, if those first six years have a major impact on how you see the world and view the world and in the formation of your personality, how then can you even begin to change things that happened to you at a time when you had no control over it? Well, that's, that's a very important, big, big question. And- Big, big. Big, big. The answer is that the- That we begin to answer in, in what happened exactly. to you. Okay. And you do not have enough time here, Mr. Scientist, to I, explain I, it, but go ahead. I won't explain it. Give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. So <laughs> basically what we know is that all parts of the brain are malleable, changeable. The key is actually reaching the parts of the brain with sufficient repetition to cause change. And so children who have these early life insults that result in these profound abnormalities during development, if you end up getting uh, opportunities for consistent, predictable, stable relationships over time, you will over time get better. Even if you had a bad start, it, it, you can get better. It just takes time. Yes. And it takes people, it takes relationships. One profound thing I realized after listening to thousands of people like share their stories uh, with me over the years is that all pain is the same and that we have no reason to judge another person's pain. And for everyone watching, I think if you take nothing else away from this experience, this conversation, I think what you and I want people to know from this book is that no matter what happened to you, it's not too late you do have a chance to rewrite the script. And you talk about something called post-traumatic wisdom, using all of these things, experiences, good and bad in your life, to allow you to have post-traumatic wisdom instead of stress about it. What does that mean? Well, basically that's referring to the experience where you've been able to kind of get through adversity and you're now at a safer place in your life and you can look back and reflect and take what you've learned and use that to see the world differently. You use your pain and transform it to power and help other people. I think of the most transformative people I've ever known, every single one of them had personal pain and traumatic experience that was a core element of who they became. And it didn't, right. it didn't crush them. It, they learned right. how to carry the burden in a way, uh, it's not like it goes away. It's, I mean, you know, it's, you know, it's not like you're free of distress or depression or anxiety. It's just that it didn't destroy them. And it gives, those people tend to have tremendous empathy 
for others who are struggling. And they also tend to have wisdom. You know, they're wise about yeah. the ability to live with pain and not have so much fear from pain. You know, it's not like you're going back and undoing. You're moving forward. I mean, that's the thing. That's the nature of human, the human biological system. We always are moving forward. We're changing. We may think the same, look the same, but we're always changing right. forward. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Bruce Perry. My pleasure. For writing this book, What Happened to You, for enlightening me, and uh, hopefully now we'll be able to bring that enlightenment to a lot of other people to understand themselves, and particularly understanding how what happened to you shaped the way you see the world and what you can do now if you want to change that view of the world. What Happened to You is available wherever books are sold beginning April 27th. Excited, aren't we? Very excited. Very excited. Thank you. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel.